0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. That will be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, but be, we will be looking at it twice. So if this week you think, but hey, you didn't talk about this. Well, that's true, so stay tuned. you got to come back next week. I'll say that like three or four times during the sermon. But um, uh, before we read Genesis 22... Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can draw near to you. We thank you that your mercy seat is open still. Uh, We thank you that Christ has opened the way to your throne of grace. Uh, We thank you that we can draw near and find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Father, we come to you now, we come to hear from you, we come to hear your word, we pray that you would teach us, that you would point us to Jesus, that you would uh, call us to faithfulness, uh, that you would empower us to that end by your grace. Uh, We pray that you would be at work by your spirit uh, in my words and in all of our ears and hearts and minds. Uh, Be with us now by your spirit to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tiba, Geham, Tahash, and Maakah. Sometimes I become an atheist. Not for long, uh, but sometimes uh, for an hour or two. It's, it's not that I, that I confess that there is no God. My confession is sound and orthodox and Christian. But there is a gap between my confessional theology and my functional theology. And this happened, in fact, while I was preparing this sermon, there were two or three things coming at me from different angles, and I was, I was freaking out. I was overwhelmed. I was frustrated. I was anxious. Uh, none of them uh, were earth-shattering. None were so big that they changed the course of my life. In fact, I can't even remember what they were. But in the moment, they felt like the end of the world. What was controlling my heart in those moments was not God's glory, but my comfort. What I was trusting in was not God's sovereignty and the Spirit's power, but my power to restore order to the world, which was lacking. My faith was tested and found wanting. You see, how you respond when the heat is turned up in life demonstrates what has first place in your heart. In Genesis 22, Abraham is tested. Uh, Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. His faith was tried. In his story, this story of the binding of Isaac, we will see Christ, the child of Abraham, the child of Abraham, who was tested, who suffered, and who rose. But we also hear a call to face trials ourselves by putting God first. By resting in his promises and his love. We're gonna look at at Genesis 22 twice over. Uh, It's really one sermon in two parts. And what that means is, again, if you're here this week, you have to come back next week to hear the end of the sermon. Uh, This week, we'll look at the reality uh, that how you respond when the heat is turned up shows what has first place in your heart. And so we're gonna look at facing trials and putting God first. Next week, we will see for God to have first place, we only need to believe his promises and know his love. So this week is diagnosis, and next week is treatment. And so again, right, uh, you've got to come back next week. You'd never want a doctor to diagnose you and not prescribe some treatment, and so stay tuned. But first, facing trials and putting putting God first. So first face trials. Uh, Life is varied. Uh, There there are good times and bad, ups and downs, and difficulties inevitably come. Uh, Those trials look different for each one of us. Uh, It's not helpful to compare my trials to yours or our trials to Christians around the world. That tends to miss the point. And the point of our trials is not pass-fail either. Uh, That is the the way we often think of tests. Uh, But through this kind of a test... We learn about ourselves. Uh, Is my faith weak or strong? Where do I need to grow? Is my relationship to God what it needs to be or or do I need to go deeper? Uh, What has functional control of my heart? Through trials, we learn about ourselves and we are refined, purified as gold through fire. Our faith is strengthened through the difficulty. And so our trials are are both, in a sense, revelatory in that they show us something about ourselves and sanctifying. They they make us who we are as we are made more like Jesus, the one who suffered for us. Our text begins with these words in Genesis 22.1. I'm going to read them half a dozen times. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, we'll look at the nature of that trial in a moment, but for now, I want you to think about the fact of the trial. God tested Abraham. Uh, If if you look through scriptures, you will notice that God has a habit of testing people. Uh, God puts a tree in Eden to test Adam and Eve by it. God tests Israel in the wilderness. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, Verse two, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, on the one hand, we might come back and say, but, but didn't God already know what was in their hearts? And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, an omniscient, all-knowing God already knew. But I can't help but think that God has this thing for existence for lived reality God isn't one for hypotheticals it seems he he didn't want Adam to commit to him in the abstract he wants Adam to commit to him uh, here now in the concrete choices of life in a moment in an instant here Adam here's a tree will you be faithful here and now The same was true with Abraham and Israel. God wanted their faith to be demonstrated, their hearts to be expressed. We are not disembodied spirits, just hearts kind of floating around in space. We are embodied creatures, hearts and bones, as Paul Simon poetically put it. And if God were happy with abstract, hypothetical, disembodied life, he didn't have to create the world at all. He could have just thought about it and been done with the whole thing. But God seems to have this fascination with being, and so he tests Adam and Abraham and Israel to show what kind of being they are, to demonstrate the character in their heart for what is inside to come outside and be expressed for all to see. And and Jesus, too, of course, was tested. We read about this in the Gospels, Matthew 4, 1. Uh, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, while there, it is the devil doing the tempting. Just notice uh, two things. First, the, actually, the Greek words for test and tempt are the same. Uh, not that they are the same realities, uh, but they are two sides of one coin, as it were. God tempts no one, James says, but he can allow the devil to do so. And in so doing, God tests us. Now, second, it is the Spirit who drives Jesus into the wilderness, God puts Jesus into this place to be tempted, to test him. Not because, of course, God is unsure of what will happen, but so that who Jesus is will come out, will be lived out. The Father is giving Jesus the opportunity to be who he was made to be, to be who he is. It's, the one, thing, it's one thing that Jesus can conquer the devil. It's another thing for Jesus to do it. And we, too, face trials which test us, uh, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And later he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Peter says, we are now being grieved by various trials. First Peter 1.6, he says, we're being grieved by various trials so that our faith will be tested and tried and proven. Now, you know, this might bother some people. I mean, you might wonder, why is God putting me through this? We get surprised that God would allow such things in our lives. But Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, Peter says, you know, whatever trials, whatever difficulties you're going through, this isn't strange. Uh, This is the normal Christian life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. And Paul said, shortly after being stoned half to death, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. And we may not understand what God is doing, and we may wonder why he is doing it, but just look through the scriptures and you will see it is not out of the ordinary. And what's more, Peter says rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings uh, that you may re- also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, our, our sufferings demonstrate that we are united to the one who suffered for us. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus, the suffering servant. If you want to be like Christ, then you must be prepared to suffer with Christ. Again, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So our trials really make us like Jesus twice over. Uh, first, because Jesus suffered so that by, by our trials, we are made, uh, our lives are made like his life. And second, because our trials sanctify us so that by our trials, our character is made like his character. As with Christ, God doesn't test because he is uncertain of the outcome, but to give us a chance to be who we are, to refine, to demonstrate, to prove our faith. Now, I don't know about you, but my default position is not to count suffering all joy. My default position is to run, uh, to do whatever I can to escape. Uh, to to run from, to avoid, to self-medicate, to distract, or to attack whatever is causing distress. I don't count my trials a joy by default. I don't see them as an instrument in my loving Father's hand for my good and growth in grace. I see them as an enemy of my comfort to be escaped or ended one way or another. But trials are an instrument in our Father's hand. Now, let let me say at this moment, uh, if this is uncomfortable for you to think about, that your trials may be used by God for your good, uh, one, I understand that, uh, me too. I understand that discomfort. Uh, But two, uh, hold on to that sense of anxiety and know that I hate to say, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, But hang in there, because it will get better by the end of the sermon. So, uh, point one, face trials. Uh, point two, in the face of trials, put God first. When trials come, if we run or, or medicate or attack, we are putting ourselves first. We're putting our comfort and control first. Uh, we're forgetting God, forgetting his promises, forgetting his glory. You see, if God is first, I'm going to remain patient in the midst of my trials. God's in control, uh, working out his purposes in his time. If God is first, I'm going to remain kind, God calls me to love in the midst of my difficulty. If God is first, I'm going to remain calm. God is present with me in the valley. If God is first, I'm going to remain present. God calls me to walk through the valley and love others along the way. When I run or, or self-medicate or attack, it's because I have forgotten God. He is no longer in the picture. My trouble and my, and my comfort are the only things that matter to me in this moment. But, of course, that's the very thing that trials test, isn't it? They, they test what is first in my life, what is really important to me, what really matters. How you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what has first place in your heart. Again, look at the first six words of verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, these words are important here because what comes next seems so harsh. In fact, uh, the Jewish lawyer Alan Dershowitz says of this passage that in it, Abraham commits attempted murder and is praised. Uh, Dershowitz is appalled by what God asks of Abraham. And, of course, he's not the only one, and we can understand why. And so we should take a minute to talk about it. Uh, God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. What? in the world are we to do with that? Well, let me mention seven things. Uh, First, child sacrifice was actually the, the norm of that day, as horrible as that sounds to us and as horrible as it was, meaning this would have been something familiar to Abraham. Now, that doesn't make it right, but God was testing Abraham according to the norms of his day. In fact, even Dershowitz, although disapprovingly, quotes his colleague at Harvard, John Levinson, who teaches that in the days of the patriarch, child murder was distinguished from child sacrifice. The, murder was, uh, the former was almost universally condemned, the latter widely accepted as a show of gratitude toward the gods. The sacrifice, is, sacrifice is different from murder, Levinson says, as evidenced by the inclusion of whom you love in the description of the sacrificed object. You murder those you hate. You sacrifice what you love most. In a sense, God was saying to Abraham, do you love me as much as the pagans love their gods? Now, again, that would not justify Abraham sacrificing his son, but it does give us some context of what's going on, and still we need to go further. So second, we need to notice that God did not have Abraham go through with this. This is an important and relevant point. Verse 1 tells us this is a test. And in the end, God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. God wants Abraham to demonstrate his loyalty, but he does not have Abraham go through with it. God has no interest in the sacrifice of children. Which brings us to the third point, uh, to passages like Leviticus 18.21, where God says, "...you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord." Or 2 Kings 17, 17, where it says they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, provoking the Lord to anger. Or finally, verses in the prophets like Jeremiah seven thirty one, which says that Israel burned their sons and their daughters in the fire, something, God says in Jeremiah seven thirty one, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. God says, I never even thought that you would do such a horrible thing. God is pretty insistent with Israel, child sacrifice is wrong. And it's a good reminder for us that a command to one person in a particular historical context in the scripture is not a command to everyone in every context. God told the the Israelites to gather manna off the ground in the desert. That was how uh, God provided for Israel. That is not how God provides for us today. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but we have to tread lightly and move slowly. Uh, And so while it was consistent with the culture in which Abraham lived and God used it as a test, God did not have Abraham go through with it, and this was never meant to be imitated directly. In fact, child sacrifice is something God hates, he says. Fourth, what is going on here is an extreme request that demonstrates an everyday principle. It, It is an exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. Uh, God gives us an example in the extreme to show that nothing should be held back. Uh, This is similar to Jesus saying, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus does not want us to cut off our right hands, but he exaggerates for the sake of emphasis. The same kind of thing is going on here. God is demonstrating the cost of discipleship. Everything must be placed at the feet of Jesus. We must put nothing before God, even those things which are most precious to us in life. And for most of us, this happens over the long haul, in the mundane. But it is hard to illustrate a principle like that over the long haul in the mundane, and so the the extreme illustrates it pointedly. Fifth, ultimately this test was so hard, uh, not just because Isaac was Abraham's child, but because Isaac was the child of promise. You may remember God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless the nations through him and his seed. And God said, through Isaac, would his offspring be reckoned? To sacrifice Isaac was to effectively put an end to God's promise. And so the question for Abraham is, is Abraham, which do you love more, the promises of God or the God who promised? Could Abraham believe that God could still be faithful even if Isaac was offered up. This was not just a test of Abraham's loyalty, in fact, then, though it certainly was that. It was also a test of the faith of the man of faith. Could God keep his promises if the child of promise were sacrificed? Sixth, uh, while God did not have Abraham go through with it, and while for us this is an exaggeration for the sake of emphasis the extreme to illustrate the principle, not to be taken literally as we walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, yet it would be literal for God. There is a father who would offer up his son as a sacrifice for sin, his only son whom he loved. Ultimately, whatever moral questions we might have about God asking Abraham to offer up his son, God would offer up his son. And Jesus would come willingly to suffer and die for us. God was preparing us, showing us, teaching us through this story that God would provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Uh, Seventh and and finally for this, uh, the, the complexity of the morality of this story shows one thing for certain. It's not made up. I mean, think about it. Why would you put in your Bible both a strongly worded command, repeated strongly worded commands against child sacrifice, and then a command from God to your founding father in the faith to sacrifice his son? Uh, It doesn't make sense, unless it's true, right? In which case the writer is just being honest to the facts, however confusing they may seem. And it may be confusing, But normally where things are confusing in the scriptures, that just means we're missing something. And we need to pay all the more attention and listen carefully and closely. So let's look at the text Uh, and let's ask this question. When when difficult things come into our lives, what does it look like to put God first? Uh, Because how you respond when the heat is turned up shows what has first place in your heart. So first, again, notice the the command, this time in verse 2. God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Uh, First, God stresses the weightiness of this test. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now, If you've been around for a while, or if you've read the book of Genesis, you actually know Isaac was not Abraham's only son. But Abraham, with God's blessing, had just sent Ishmael away. Uh, God said, through Isaac would your offspring be named. In terms of the promises, in terms of the covenant, Isaac was it. The fulfillment of God's promises hinged here God says, go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's interesting, the whole command here mimics God's first command to Abraham, to go from his country to the land that God would show him. God is again calling Abraham to leave everything and follow him. Notice Abraham's response, verse 3. He rises early in the morning, Right? no dilly-dallying, no dragging his feet. He sidles sidles his donkey, he gathers his servants, he cuts the wood, he, he gets up and he goes. The kind of staccato, rapid-fire nature of the verbs emphasize Abraham's activity. He does what needs to be done to obey God's command, step by painful step. On the third day of the journey, Abraham lifts his eyes and sees the place. Uh, Some have mentioned how the third day here mimics Jesus' three days in the grave. Others say there's no connection. uh, It's just coincidence. But uh, notice, at the very least, three days from the moment Abraham determines to offer up Isaac, he will receive him back. Uh, whatever it is, it's, it's not mere coincidence. Then comes what I think are the most interesting words in the story in verse 5. Uh, verse 5: Abraham says to his young men, uh, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. But we'll come back to those verses next week. Abraham takes the wood, lays it on Isaac his son. Uh, Then, in an important detail, that's an important detail, him laying the wood on Isaac, his son, because it shows us Isaac is no longer a baby. He's a a young man, strong and capable, strong enough to carry a load of wood up the side of a mountain where the donkeys apparently could not tread. Abraham carries the fire and himself carries the fire and the knife, the instruments of his son's impending death. Uh, The the scene is, is ominous. The tension is palpable, right? What's going to happen? Isaac seems to feel the tension in the air because he says in verse seven, my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And did you notice Isaac mentions the fire and the wood, but not the knife? Uh, You kind of wonder, was his mind on the knife this whole time? Was he thinking about what Abraham was going to do with this thing and that, of course, the very question must have been uh, like a knife in Abraham's heart, and his, his answer could have been taken as could be taken as elusive, uh, even indirect. In verse eight, he simply says, "God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son." He doesn't he doesn't get any more specific than that for Isaac. So they travel on. When they come to the place, uh, again, we get the staccato drumbeat of Abraham's actions. He built the altar. He laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac. He laid him on the altar. He reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. And pause for a moment. Notice two things. First, the word slaughter. Uh, The writer doesn't find this tasteful either. He could have chosen any number of words, but he chooses this word, slaughter, in particular. Second, Abraham How old is he at this point? If you do the math, he's probably like 113. He's not a young man. Abraham, this old man, bound his young, apparently strong, son. And while this story is about Abraham's faith, it implies, at least, Isaac willingly accepts his fate. He commits himself into his father's hands. And Abraham reaches out his hand, grabs the knife... Raises it, raises it into the air, and the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham. He's insistent, urgent. Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Don't lay a hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed the test. Unlike Adam before him, unlike Israel after him, frankly, unlike Abraham many times before in his life, his faith had become action. The New Testament actually teaches us how to think about this in James 2, uh, where James writes, "'Was not Abraham our father justified by works "'when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar?' "'You see that faith was active along with his works, "'and faith was completed by his works.'" And the scripture was fulfilled that says, "'Abraham believed God.'" And it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham's actions demonstrated his faith, as James put it in verse 18. As we're told earlier in Genesis, and of course, as Paul quotes in Romans, Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness, right? Abraham is justified by faith. But that same faith was active and found its logical end in his works. Faith bears the fruit of action. This was the moment Abraham's faith became visible. Now, again, don't forget what's going on here. Abraham had to wrestle. Faith in God's promise seemed to contradict the command to sacrifice the child of promise. His love for God was at odds with his love for his son, God's gift. When the rubber meets the road, every trial is an opportunity to ask, will I put God first or his gifts? How you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what has first place in your life. God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, do you still love me? Uh, You left everything to follow me, but that was so long ago when you had nothing to lose. But now you've got a son. I gave him to you. He was my gift. Are you still willing to leave everything and follow me? Are you willing to give up even him, even Isaac, even the child of promise? Now, don't misunderstand, right? We, we must not think of God as needy, right? This isn't for God's sake. God doesn't need the affirmation that Abraham still loves him. This was for Abraham and for Israel and for us to show us what total devotion looks like. Again, an, an exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. Remember what we have here, an example of extreme sacrifice, which represents giving up our life, our hope, our dreams, our worldly affections, all to follow God. God called Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering among the offerings was not primarily about sin, but the whole, uh, it's sometimes called the whole burnt offering because the whole offering was burned on the altar. And the whole offering being burned on the altar was a sign of offering one's whole life up to God. Uh, This is, is really nothing more or less than what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. Uh, or, Or Jesus said in Matthew 16 to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In Luke 14, Jesus adds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Now, in the abstract, I think most of us in this room would say, yes, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to give up all. But it's in the hard moments that our faith is tried. When suddenly our faith costs something, we have to ask, do I really believe this? Am I willing to go forward with this even though it costs me something, even though it costs me something near and dear to my life? when walking with God means confessing our sin or forgiving our enemies or enduring hardship without grumbling, when we are passed over and ignored or called upon to bear witness in a hostile environment, when we are betrayed by a loved one or lose a loved one to sickness or violence, when we must give up what is most valuable to us because it conflicts with faithfulness to God, all those moments When we think, as as we do when we see this command here, uh, how could God possibly ask me to walk through this? That is the moment when our faith is tested. What does putting God first look like in those moments? Well, it, it looks like obeying God's commandments, whatever the cost. It looks like metaphorically taking the knife to what is most precious to you. It looks like obeying right away as Abraham got up early, like obeying step by sometimes painful step. What does it look like to pass the test, obeying God's commands, whatever the cost? Surrendering what is most valuable to you so that you can follow him. Well, what about you? Uh, Don't speculate, right? I'm not asking, would you have been willing to offer up Isaac? Uh, You are no more called to sacrifice your children than you are called to die on the cross, Here is the question for you. Are you willing to submit every aspect of life to Jesus? Are you willing to lose your life to find it? Are you willing to offer your life a living sacrifice? Are you willing to take the knife, figuratively speaking, to what is most precious to you in order to follow Jesus? Uh, Put in Jesus' terms, are you willing to take up your cross and follow Him? When the moment of testing comes and you have the choice between obeying God or maintaining your comfort, what will you choose? How you respond when the heat is turned up, it's in those moments that we see what really has first place in our hearts. Now, this moment of crisis, uh, this this test, this trial for us will uh, not likely come in big and glamorous moments. We are to die daily, Jesus says. We live in the mundane, so we offer ourselves in the mundane, In one sense, we are both Abraham and Isaac in the story, offering up our lives. Or we are Abraham, offering up to God what is most precious to us, our very selves. Uh, We sacrifice for lots of reasons, right? We sacrifice for our careers, for our education, for our children. Sometimes people sacrifice one thing for another, their children for their career. The question is not, will you offer yourself a living sacrifice? The question is really, to what or to whom are you offering yourself a living sacrifice? What are you pouring out your life for? Are you willing to offer your life to the Father, to offer what is most precious? When the rubber meets the road, are you willing to obey even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's uncomfortable or worse? Now, let me pause there and ask a question, which is, why is this so hard? Why is it hard to give up everything to follow Jesus? Why is it hard to put God first? It is hard. The question is, why? And I think there are at least two answers to that question. There are lots of answers to that question, but there are at least two. The first is, we love our lives. The second is, we're afraid of what will happen if we let them go, even for Jesus' sake. Those two difficulties are, are, are really what we're going to be looking at next week. Uh, this week, we're just diagnosing. Right? How you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what has first place in your heart. If you, if you want to know what you value most, what do you protect when life is hard, when difficulties happen? Next week, we'll look at the treatment. For God to have first place, we only need to believe his promises and know his love. Uh, but let me anticipate that just for a moment, right? I can't leave you there. Uh, If you want God to be first in your life, you need to know God's love in Jesus. You need to know that as Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac to God, so God did not spare his own son for us. We see God's devotion and love for us, what scripture calls his steadfast love in the cross. And we see our hope in the midst of trials in Jesus' resurrection. Life comes through death. Jesus died and rose. If we lose our lives for his sake, we will find them. Only when we are wooed by God's love and our fears are assuaged by the promise of the resurrection, only then will we be able to step out in trials and put God first whatever may come. How you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what has is first place in your heart. For God to have first place, you must believe his promises and know his love as seen in the cross and the resurrection. And if you want to understand that better, come back next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you gave your son and that he willingly offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. Help us to rest in the work of Jesus. And know that he suffered your wrath so that we don't have to. Help us to rest in him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.